Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Paddock Pass podcast. I am your host this week, Jensen Beeler of Asphalt and Rubber. And with me on my right is the esteemed... David Emmett. Of who? Of thatthermotomatters.com. Oh, you should be reading that one if you're not, sir. And the other co-host of our dear show is Mr. Neil Morrison. On track off-road fame, uh, Crash.net fame, Road Racing World... Twitter, MySpace, Beeble. Tinder. I mean, <laughs> I can find you pretty much anywhere, Neil. Um, but I am very glad to have the both of you on the show today because we just finished up the Grand Prix of the Americas here in Austin, Texas. It was, I'd say, a rather eventful affair, a lot more than we were certainly expecting. I feel vindicated in my picks for the weekend. How about you, fellas? Uh, fortunately, I have a terrible memory and I can't remember what I picked. So obviously I went for Alex Rins to win the race because uh, it was pretty much clear from um, uh, last week. That must have been a different show you made that prediction. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, and I'm so used to getting things incredibly wrong that uh, it's just washed over me and uh, you know I'm, I'm kind of indifferent. Just another day at the office for you then. <laughs> yeah. Well, it was an interesting race. As David teased it, Alex Rins was the winner. Uh, quite the surprising result, quite the surprising race. I don't think, uh, we don't have Steve to tell us what the odds were at the bookie, but I'd imagine that was a little bit of a long shot if you were going to place many on it. It was a long shot because um, uh, MCN Simon Patterson uh, showed me a message which someone sent uh, sent him. Uh, someone had put something like £10 or something on Alex Rins and then won in the region of £160. So, yes. A few people did quite well out of that. 16 to 1 seems kind of under, to be honest. That's not bad. Yeah, I'm doing it from memory. I'm not entirely sure. It was a lot of money. All I can remember is thinking, I wish I'd put £10 on Alex Rince. Absolutely. Um, The Suzuki certainly seems to be getting stronger and stronger, but, um, you know, Alex Rince has really impressed me uh, this season so far and the end of last season. Um, Yeah, I'm tremendous. I, I have high hopes for the lad. As you would say. Yeah, exactly. Neil, you were saying earlier he's had, what, 10? How many uh, top sixes in a row? Yeah, essentially this form that he started uh, 2019 with is uh, um, an extension of what he began, I think, after the summer break or just after the summer break in 2018. Um, I think Suzuki and him have both have they've both had this potential for, for some time now and it's maybe taken Rins to get a little bit more experience uh, fighting at the front. Um, to become uh, consistent. And from Mizano, I think, last year, he's been inside the top six and every time uh, we've had a MotoGP race. And, um, yeah, I think preseason testing showed that he was definitely going to be a race winner this year. He was going to be a regular top five, top six guy. Um, in theory, he probably could have finished on the podium in each of the three opening races of the year. Um, Suzuki was just outgunned during the first race uh, in Qatar. Uh, he had a lousy qualifying in Argentina, but had definite pace to challenge for the podium. Um, and uh, yeah, I think none of us obviously saw Marquez uh, crashing out of the lead, but uh, Rins rode magnificently, very calmly as well behind Valentino. Obviously, there was no sense of uh, him being overawed by the occasion. Um, I think he started the last lap with around 0.6 in hand, and there was no nerves. Uh, you didn't see any mistakes. He was pretty cool, even though Rossi was chasing him down right to the very end. Um, 
And uh, yeah, there's a real mature head on those pretty young shoulders. Yeah, I mean, when you're in, in sight of that first wing, when it's really easy to make a mistake, um, run a little bit wide and give the, especially someone as experienced as Valentino Rossi, um, give them a chance to come back. Uh, but Rossi himself said that uh, uh, he thought that maybe he could catch Rince on the last uh, on the last lap if he'd ridden a completely perfect lap. But he made a couple of small tiny mistakes and couldn't catch him and that was uh that was it um as you say really mature ride it was actually it was an interesting battle between uh, uh between rinse and Ross, rossi as well because they were both clearly sizing each other up i think it also helped uh, in that sense that that uh, uh rossi was actually leading for uh, for quite a while because it gave it gave rinse a, a chance to have a look size things up find out the best place to attack um also see where he was uh, where he was stronger. And as soon as he got past, he actually opened up a gap pretty much straight away. And it was clear that he was just that little bit stronger than Rossi. Yeah. And if either of the two looked a little more ragged, a little more likely to make a mistake, it definitely was Rossi. And I think it was his mistake at turn 12 when he outbraked himself trying to pass Rins that uh, gave him six tenths of a second, um, which he more or less just about held on to. Yeah, I mean, uh, that, that to me was a, 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 an example of Rins' maturity because it was just, it was a brilliant piece of um, uh, race management. He knew that Valentino was coming. He knew that if Valentino came, he was going to run and run wide. So he just, he just, he gave him enough room to make, uh, it gave him enough rope to hang himself with, basically, gave him enough room to get past. Uh, and then uh, held the tighter line through uh, through turn turn twelve and had a fairly easy run at um, uh, at getting away. Yeah, and uh, speaking to the riders after the race, um, I think the the highest praise really that he received was from uh, people like Rossi and Davizioso, who said Rint is absolutely a championship contender. Davizioso pointed out four guys in the fight for this year's title from what he's seen in the first four races. That's uh, Davizioso, Marquez, obviously, Rossi as well, and uh, and Rins. And, um, yeah, I think they probably see um, the consistency. Over the last 10 months, um, he's probably been as consistent as uh, anyone out there. Yeah, actually, I think they got a new engine, I think, was it Assen last year? Um, and that was the boost in power that they needed. Um, it took them more or less sort of the rest of the, the rest of the seasons to sort that out. They did a really good job, uh, testing over the winter. I spoke to uh, David Abrivio after the press conference, uh, and he said it was basically just like a puzzle trying to put all the pieces together to make things work. Um, uh, they did, did a good job on that. What was interesting was when we asked him, uh, where does the Suzuki need to improve? He said, he didn't say horse, but he says, well, Everyone says we need more power, and yeah, sure, more power is nice, but the engines are sealed, so we can't get any more power. Um, what we uh, what we really need now is a bit more improvement in braking, even though the Suzuki is actually quite good on braking anyway. Uh, but a, a little bit stronger braking would allow uh, give them a little bit more freedom to uh, to manoeuvre. But it's interesting that they both both Suzukis qualified. Uh, well, it was. Not brilliantly, but, uh, but, but, but not poorly, but, um, uh, the qualifying is really the, still a bit of a bugbear for both Joan Mir and, uh, uh, and Alex Rins. Yeah. And it is slightly confusing because when going back to preseason testing again, uh, Rins was exceptionally quick on a handful of days, um, uh, during preseason testing. Um, but qualifying so far this year hasn't been great. He was seventh in Austin, which is a big improvement in Argentina where he was 16th. Um, but you would say if there's one weakness in his armory, it is that still. 
um, that's the one thing he really needs to work on because everything else, I mean, he looks he looks good. We've seen him really aggressive at the start of races in recent weeks. Um, and in fact, going back to last year as well, he's able to make up a lot of positions early on. Um, and, you know, for such a gentle, uh, softly spoken guy, um, he can be a bit of an animal out on track as well. And, um, yeah, I think uh, he's really putting together quite a complete skill set. Um, and even last year, I was speaking to um, David Ibrivio, uh, Suzuki's team manager, and he was saying then that 2018, he still considered Rins to be something of a rookie um, because of the uh, considerable amount of track action he missed in his rookie year in 2017. I think basically for half a season wasn't fit was either injured or was riding but was quite some uh, quite some distance away from full fitness um so you know we're talking about a guy here that's just got about uh just over a season and a half of proper MotoGP experience under his belt and uh yeah and what, and one of those second in the championship yeah and one of those seasons was on a bike which was really um uh, really totally had the wrong engine. It was, uh, I think they got the, the, the crankshaft a little bit too heavy, which made the bike really difficult to turn. Um, uh, they, I mean, they lost a lot of, uh, they lost the, the, uh, or oh, they gained, they lost all the con- their concession points. So they gained concessions that allowed them to actually experiment with the, uh, with the engine last year. Um, and, uh, has in, you know, made this, made this improvement. But, uh, um, yeah, he really has, I mean, he has like a full season of, uh, one full season last year. And before that, sort of, uh, it was a bit of a mess. Yeah. I would say Honda, Ducati are clearly still the best bike. Well, okay. I'll not say clearly. I think they're still the best bikes in the championship, but I think Suzuki has been really closed the gap to them and is very close behind, has its own fantastic attributes. And a lot of that credit has to go down to Rins because he's been the team leader. He's been able to select the pieces um, that has made that bike into what it is. I think also it seems to me that Rins has also grown in that uh, because there was always a little bit of uh, conflict between Iannone and them. Um, uh, or not, not so much conflict, but they, they, they didn't seem to work, work well together. Now Rince is clearly, and he feels himself to be the team leader, um, uh, leading, uh, uh, leading the project. And, um, he's grown into that. He's taken that responsibility and, um, it's made him, uh, yeah, it, it's made him stronger. You know, I think the last time I was on the podcast last year, we were actually talking about the uh, Suzuki coming in very close to the Yamaha. I think we had a little bit of a debate on whether or not it was better than or equal to uh, the Yamaha at the time. So it's interesting to hear you you say that now, Neil, that that you know, clearly it's taken a step past. I, I certainly agree with it. I think the results agree with you as well. But it's it's been impressive to watch the development of that team and that package over the last few seasons. Some hits and some misses, like, like you said, David, but it looks really strong. It looks really strong. And, you know, Neil, I had the question for you. I wrote it down about 10 minutes ago. But if you're Maverick Vinales, <laughs> you regret leaving the, the Suzuki team right now. Yeah, I know. That's, uh, I'm sure that's something he replays over and over in his mind. I think it was, uh, after the Japanese Grand Prix last year, I remember Vinales was asked, do you think what your life would be like had you, uh, made a different decision, um, midway through 2016. And he said, yeah, pretty much every day I think about what it would be like to, to still be with Suzuki or to be riding for a Ducati or riding a Honda. Um, 
And I remember speaking to uh, Mavericks All Crew Chief, who is now working with Alex Rins, uh, Jose Manuel Cazu, um, at the end of 2017. And he said, had Maverick Vinales stayed, he felt that Vinales had grown so much in 2016 that had he stayed for a third season with Suzuki in 17, uh, they wouldn't have lost the way in development direction because they wouldn't have had two new riders come in with the Inone and Rins at the time. He is absolutely sure that Vinales would have fought for the title in 2017. You think back to the issues that Mark has had with the front tire and in the early part of the season and lots of inconsistency. Um, so I think that Vinales absolutely is probably looking at that and thinking, why or why? Because at the time, Suzuki were doing everything they could to incorporate him into their long-term future. They were saying things like, um, Maverick Vinales can be like our next Barry Sheen, our next Kevin Schwantz guys that are synon synonymous with our brand. And they were willing to break the bank for them uh, to do that, to keep him there. And, uh, well, the chance to go and uh, sit next to Valentino Rossi was uh, was too much of a draw for Vinales. And, uh, yeah, I think you need to be careful what you wish for in MotoGP. Yeah, I, what's interesting is that um, Vinales, I mean, all of these guys are intensely ambitious uh, they all believe that they can win the MotoGP championship and that's all that they live for um, uh, but that can make you greedy and make you take chances that uh, it can make you sort of you know take what seems like an obviously better offer without thinking sort of like long term and that's definitely what happened to Maverick Vinales since uh, since Vinales has, when, since Lorenzo has left since Vinales has gone it's all gone a, a little bit sideways because it looked like a dead cert and then, um, what did we, yeah, what, what do we find? Um, uh, Suzuki is, well, had a bad year and just kept on making steady progress. Yeah. And I think one of the, uh, the biggest compliments to Alex Rins that Suzuki has made is the hiring of John Mir is the fact that they were totally comfortable, um, bringing in another rookie, knowing that there would be a season of him learning, uh, the ropes. They felt totally confident that he could lead the way. There were talks with Jorge Lorenzo's management back in April, May last year. Uh, at one point, that looked like one of Lorenzo's only options if he were to leave Ducati. And I think the fact that Suzuki didn't really pursue that line of uh, of negotiation, um, they probably got the impression from Lorenzo as well that they wouldn't have been his number one choice and that wasn't uh, what they wanted from their rider. They want their riders to come in feeling that this is an exceptional opportunity for them rather than ah, it's a second best option or whatever. Um, but I think, you know, the fact that they didn't pursue that uh, that line fully with Lorenzo, they weren't chasing him, um, showed the, the confidence that, that they had in Rins, the belief that they had that he could possibly be doing what he is doing right now. I would agree with that partially, but the other thing is, that I the stories I heard was that there was a lot of pushback from Japan after signing Iannone. Um, that didn't work out. Uh, what they wanted was an experienced rider who could come in straight away and uh, and, and be a, a championship contender. Uh, obviously, Iannone, the hiring of Iannone and Rince at the same time, uh, meant and Rince getting banged up uh, uh, sort of during preseason testing. Um, meant they missed a awful lot, made wrong, uh, wrong choices for 2017. Um, but that experience with Ian Oney, and also the way that Ian, Ian Oney is not very good at PR and, um, uh, didn't make himself uh, beloved at all by the Suzuki, by Suzuki management. And Suzuki Japan said, we don't want a superstar. We don't want anyone with their superstar, uh, egos. Uh, we would rather take in, uh, another young rider and shape him. 
Um, but like you say, Neil, it is true. You can, it's easy to say that, but you have to have faith in the rider, in the rider that you keep. And I mean, you have to, you have to say they made absolutely the right choice in getting rid of Ian O'Neill and keeping Reams because Ian O'Neill is on a downhill slide. Yeah. You bring up the point of shaping the riders. That, that was everything that I heard last season or when they were talking about Vinales. Because about this time last year, they were they were trying to keep him. And there was this idea of we want to build a team around a rider. You bring up, you know, Kevin Schwantz. That was the name I kept hearing. We want our next Kevin Schwantz. We want someone that's going to be a career-long Suzuki rider that's going to be like, you know, a brand ambassador down the line. They had this whole this whole vision, and it, it kind of came to a crumble on them. Yeah, and now it's going to be Alex Rins who's going to be the next Kevin Schwantz. It's looking that way, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I did speak to Kevin Schwartz last year uh, at this round, the Circuit of the Americas, and asked him about Rinson. Um, you do wonder whether, obviously, Schwartz is very attached to Suzuki and is obviously going to talk up their men. Um, but considering some of the things he was saying about Andre Inone, that was <laughs> he not always true. He wasn't talking Andre up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but he said that, you know, he, he from what he'd seen in, in Rinson's short time as a MotoGP rider at that point, uh, yeah, he thinks that he's one of the guys that can take the fight to Marquez consistently in the coming years. So, you know, high praise from, from Kevin. David, you started the show out saying you don't have a, a terrific memory about the last show, but I, I do. And I, I remember you saying that the only person that can beat Mark Marquez is Mark Marquez. That's and right. how right were you, sir? I'm always 100% right, obviously. Um what was interesting was was Marquez's comments. Like, what happened? Marquez got away, had a lead about three and a half seconds, um, and uh, crashed out at turn twelve. Um, it, one of the toughest places for everyone. There was um, Cal Crutchlow crashed there as well. No, he crashed at turn eleven. Oh, did he say? Oh, turn eleven. Sorry, yeah, turn eleven, turn twelve. That was the place where people were crashing. End of the back straight. Lots of bumps. Um, what I found interesting about Mark Marquez's comments, though, was that he said. Um, uh, it's my mistake, but I wasn't really pushing. I had three and a half uh, uh, seconds of advantage. I uh, didn't do anything different from the um, uh, from the lap before. I looked at the data. I wasn't over the limit. So it's. I found it all a bit strange. Yeah, it was a little strange. I don't know whether he was trying to cover up the fact that he had perhaps lost some concentration or he got a little bit too cocky, a little bit too confident. He certainly didn't appear to do too much wrong when we were watching back replays of the, uh, the yeah, incident uh, it, itself. It, it looked like a perfectly normal, because I was also trying to look for signs of um, you know, a mechanical issue or something with a bike uh, or, or a bump or anything. And it just looked like he went into the corner, uh, got it sort of in there, still on the brakes and the front went. Yeah. Um, yeah, puzzling one, really. And he said that he had no warnings before that. He was well within his limits, as you said, David. Um, all of the things, no this warnings. is one of the things, I'm going to get straight into a conspiracy theory here, but this is all of the things that he was saying made me really suspicious about something happened, that something um, happened with the bike or something, I don't know, engine braking or... Uh, there is some aspect of the bike which is making it more difficult for him to manage in certain aspects or the bike just reacted slightly differently than he expected. Yeah, and that wouldn't be a surprise because we know that Honda has essentially tried to reshape the character of the RCV this year with Lorenzo coming in. Uh, I think there's been a conscious effort to 
um, alter its characteristics somewhat. Um, but it is quite difficult to alter those characteristics when two of the riders, Cal Crutzlo and Mark Marquez, um, have essentially honed their style to extract the absolute maximum from a really strong front end late braking motorcycle. And um, if they are trying to change that a little bit with Lorenzo's rival, um, there could be some adverse effects. Um, and we also have to kind of take into account that these guys, Lorenzo, sorry, uh, Marquez and Crutzlo, um, really only had one preseason test out of four where they were able to ride the bike at 100% as they wanted because of injury and fitness issues. And then obviously the first two rounds of the year. Um, I think the fact that the Honda, they said all weekend, wasn't the best with coping with the bumps. It's not the, um, it's obviously a very stiff bike. And um, unlike perhaps the Suzuki or the Yamaha, uh, it doesn't react so well over the bumps. Um, that could have been an issue as well. But um, yeah, it I does mean, make you... Yeah. The, the other thing that they've said is the fact that there's very little feel from the front, or there's, they sacrificed, they've gained horsepower, they've also gained acceleration. Um, uh, I, it might have been Petrucci, I think, who said on, on Friday that riding behind the Honda, he'd, what he'd noticed is that um, uh, the Honda had gained acceleration. Um, and... That means changing the weight distribution a little bit, the balance of the bike a little bit. Uh, but all through pre-season testing, both Cal Crutcher and Mark Market said, uh, haven't got confidence at the front end. This is really still, uh, Lorenzo's big problem that he doesn't have the confidence in the front end that he needs to be able to ride, um, uh, uh, and to really push. So maybe they sacrificed that bit of feel in the front end and that's what's causing the problems. Yeah, I mean, it was, a, it was a terrible, terrible day, uh, for Honda at the office. I think I saw Dennis Noyes, a veteran American journalist, uh, tweeting this morning that I think it was their first, or sorry, their worst points return in a MotoGP or 500cc race since 1982 in France, a boycotted race when all of the Honda entries, uh, withdrew <laughs> due to safety concerns. Uh, six points was the grand total of the four Honda riders on the grid. Takanakagami coming home in 10th, but he was miles off. Um, didn't feel comfortable all, week, all weekend either. Um, so yeah, I mean, not a complete disaster. Marquez was on to win the race. Crutzler was on for a podium. Um, but. Yeah, you do wonder if that lack of experience pushing the bike at its limits through preseason, uh, there's maybe going to be a few surprises that pop up here and there when we go to tracks with quite exceptional uh, conditions like Coda. Neil, I want to talk about the Honda situation uh, in, a, in a minute here on the podcast, but let's just briefly get through who else had positive results at, at the race because Mark Marquez going down created some opportunities for some upper for some other riders, and we saw a little bit of a shakeup on the. Uh, the championship stand, the championship standings because of it, didn't we, David? Yeah, exactly. I mean, it, the championship looks fantastic right now. We have four riders on four different bikes uh, within nine points. Um, David Chioso, Valentino Rossi, um, uh, Alex Rintz, and Mark Marquez. Uh, that looks really good. We've had three different uh, riders on three different bikes winning uh, the, the first three races. First time since 2008. 
There you go. Yeah, that's uh, even better than 2015 when there were so many different winners. Um, so yeah, it, it really looks it really looks wide open. Valentino Rossi had a brilliant race, and he's clearly clearly the Yamaha is much more comp- competitive um, uh, there uh, than it was certainly than it than it was last year. Um, I would put the Suzuki and the Yamaha probably on more or less the same sort of level, um, uh, more or less. Or they're probably maybe just a fraction behind the Ducati and the Honda, uh, or certainly the Ducati. I think the Ducati is probably the best bike on the grid. The Honda is maybe sort of at the same level as the as the Suzuki uh, Suzuki and the Yamaha. Hard to judge at the moment, like you say. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean the, the fact that there's so many there's so many good riders, and we saw you know Jack Miller taking his first podium since 2016. Um, the winner, the win in the West at Assen. Uh, the fact that the Ducati is so good has, has helped make uh, Jack Miller so, uh, much more competitive. Uh, he was, ba- he was the best Ducati rider all weekend, really. I mean, he just had an outstanding, uh, outstanding weekend, um, uh, here. Uh, we've got riders like that. We saw Morbidelli and Quattararo, Franco Morbidelli coming in fifth, his best MotoGP, uh, result. Still a little bit, a bit uh, behind the, behind the podium, but, um, uh, uh, yeah, still a very, very good, uh, good race for him. Uh, Dovicioso starting from 13th, coming through to finish fourth. Again, a track where he hasn't always done very well. Uh, again, he's done, yeah, he's just done really well. It's it's an interesting right now. The championship is in a really really interesting uh, situation. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, and I think just going back to Rossi, um, we've become accustomed to uh, calling him a Sunday man, rightly so. But what we saw in Argentina and what we saw in Coda was Rossi strong throughout the entire weekend, from Friday right the way through to Sunday. Um, qualifying well as well. Second on the grid. That was a superb performance we saw from him on Saturday. Um, and that suggests that he's got a really good base there. Yeah. Um, we have to be honest, Vinales has really got into a habit of messing up his Sundays, but the speed's there for him too. So yeah, I agree with that. The Yamaha is definitely a more balanced, um, package. And, um, yeah, we were talking a little bit about Hareth. Uh, last night, David. I mean, the rest is going to be absolutely fascinating because um, Rins was up there in the the fight for the lead last year. Um, new surface, uh, grippy surface, grippy surface. Okay, it's going to be really hot at the start of May, but uh, with the improvements Yamaha have made, you would say they should be there in the mix. Um, Ducati, two Ducatis were fighting for the podium places last year before that disastrous crash involving Lorenzo Davizioso and Pedroza. And, well, Marquez, we know, is going to be there strong everywhere. So, um, And also Lorenzo, because uh, Jerez is one of Lorenzo's favourite tracks. He absolutely loves it. He knows it. He understands it. Uh, he has, he's got his own corner there. Um, there's going to be a lot of motivation, and he's had lots and lots of um, crap to deal with. Uh, uh, in, in the first three races, so you you know he's going to be really really motivated. One thing about Jerez, I'd, to come back to the Honda, the fact that Mar- uh, that Marquez, Crutchlow, um, Lorenzo to an extent have missed out on so much tra- testing. They haven't had so much tra- so much testing. That test at Jerez on the Monday, I think, is going to be absolutely crucial for them. As long as they're all fit, they don't bang themselves up during uh, uh, during the race. Uh, then I think that could 
really be a really, really important test for Honda. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I think the championship starts in Hareth in some ways. We say this every year. And the other thing is there are 16 races. I mean, in 2004, 16 races was the entire championship. So, yeah, I mean, 16 races and a hell of a lot of points. Um, and we're coming back to tracks where, uh, I mean, like Jerez, they've got, they've got more data than you can possibly imagine. I mean, there's, they've done about a trillion laps. All, almost every single rider on the grid has done a trillion laps at uh, Jerez because they probably raced in the Spanish Championship uh, where they raced there twice a year. Um, uh, they test there when they're in Moto2 and Moto3. Uh, if they came up through Moto2 and Moto3, they tested there at least three times a year. Uh, plus they raced there um, uh, as well during uh, during the Grand Prix. So the um, Austin, one of the reasons why Mark is so strong at the Circuit of the Americas is because the, the track has secrets. I think everyone was saying, Mark says he has secrets. Um uh, Valentino was saying that he was, you know, watching watching Mark and learning some of his secrets. Um, but Jerez has no secrets. Jerez is an absolute open book because they've read it. They've read it from uh, from page to page and memorized its contents. Yeah, when I was in, when I was in school for the better part of a decade, the, the trick was always to get the used book for the class. <laughs> and preferably, the older the book, the better, because it had all the notes in the margins. And yeah. that's what Jerez is. It's a it's a track with all the notes in the margins yeah. in the books. Yeah. Uh, whereas, you know, Circuit of the Americas, we've only been here a you know, handful of years. Yeah. There's, there's lots and it, of... Years. And it's a difficult circuit. The Circuit of the Americas is a difficult circuit because it's so <clears> long. I can I can tell you as someone that's done a lot of laps around the Circuit of the Americas, it's, it's a very difficult racetrack to be on. There's a lot of turns to learn there's just by sheer number, but the sections of the track are very different from each other. You go to a track like Phillip Island, <clears throat> it all flows together. So it's easy to get into a rhythm. It's easy to find your pace. Circuit of the Americas, every, mm, let's say, four turns or so, it changes. It's, it's a completely different type of circuit. So you go from the blind S's uh, from turn two through, let's say, five. I don't have a track map in front of me. But then you start getting into the hairpins at 11 and 12. They're very different. Then you go through the stadium section where you're on your right-hand side of your tire for the better part of a century. Uh, turn one is this huge hill that you don't see anywhere else really on the calendar. So there's, which has a blind entry into the apex and a change yeah. in elevation and uh, yeah, and it's a really it's a really tricky one as well. I mean, the the, the other uphill turn one would be at uh, um, Austria, but that is uh, a, a little simpler because it's uphill and then they turn right and go uphill again. Whereas turn will uh, turn one at Austin is uh, up and to the left, and then you uh, you're going to the left just as you're cresting, and then you're flowing down. And you've got to get ready for that really for what should be one of the best turns on the um, uh, uh, on the calendar, which yeah. is which is turn two. It's just that there's a <laughs> massive freaking bump there, which wants to throw you off. Yeah, I definitely want to talk about that. It's um, but you're absolutely right. It is one. I was one of the first motorcycles to turn a lap at Coda, and turn two was fantastic back. And watching it from the track side now, <clears throat> it's a it's a whole different animal. Yeah, that's what Carl Quetzal was saying on Thursday. Um, first time he came to the Coda, first time the championship came to Coda in 2013, he said it was the best track he'd ever ridden. Now he said it's one of the worst just because of the track surface. Yeah. Before we get into the track, though, Neil, I want to talk a little bit about what's going on in the Honda Garage because it's been a bit of um, an atypical result for them. You know, think of Honda's. Very reliable machines. Very un-Honda-like to see uh, 
Marquez in Argentina having the issue with the chain. Um, and then we come here to Coda and we see Lorenzo struggling in qualifying and also in the race. Yeah, yeah. Uh, when was the last time we saw um, a chain jump off? Before Argentina, when was the last time we saw a chain come off a MotoGP machine? And then it I, re- I remember uh, someone lost a link, I think sometime last year, but that's normal that's the, the normal sort of failure where you know a link a link fails and the and the the chain flails around but you do, you do not see chains jump off of the uh, off the sprocket yeah so for that to happen twice in two race weekends that's what happened to lorenzo on uh, saturday during qualifying um yeah perplexing very strange indeed um and then well both lorenzo and honda uh, ven- vehemently denied that was the reason for Lorenzo's uh, with withdrawal from the race or retirement from the race on Sunday. Um, yeah, I, I think that has to be correct because, um, uh, you know, there were dawn, too many dawn, dawn cameras around there, too many photo, photographers around there, uh, and if the chain was hanging off, they, there would be a photograph of the chain off. Yeah, but perplexing again. And uh, Lorenzo seemingly can't catch a break the clutch issue, which obviously uh, ruined the start of his race in Qatar. Um, then the issue with the handlebar grip in, uh, in, uh, in Argentina. And now this, um, you know, you just wonder where or when the guy is next going to catch a break. Yeah, exactly. And uh, I mean, it was an electrical fault that they said was the, uh, was the bike. And from what we heard, um, it sort of cut out and then stopped. I also wonder a little bit because uh, when Mark, uh, fell, uh, he got back on, couldn't get the bike started again. Uh, I wonder if that was also related or if there was something going on going on there, but it might just be that it was too difficult to, to stop the bike. Couldn't that just be the case of the seamless gearboxes too, though, because they're notoriously hard to... No, well, there's a, there's, there is a... Um, the little neutral lever. Yeah, there's a little, there is a little lever which you have to depress before, it's, before you can bump start. But then... then perhaps not used to doing that because of the um but you could hear the engine turning over when he was uh, from the onboard you could actually hear the engine turn over and sort of fire and then cut out again um uh but there's the, a the leave they have to engage nowadays of course they're all not uh, bump started or roll started they're actually uh started with a jack shaft in the um uh, a jack shaft in the side um because that's more of uh, more efficient um, so, but yeah, it's, it's, it's really puzzling because the one thing that HRC don't do is, um, uh, make mistakes. I mean, I remember, um, th- I know in the past that, uh, HRC mechanics have been f- fired when, uh, mistakes have been made. Um, so yeah, it's, it's really surprising. Could it? Just to throw the conspiracy theory into full gear. Ooh. Could it not be a, uh, an issue with a mechanic? Because <clears throat> like we've been saying, Honda's been making a lot of changes to their bike. And, you know, is this a function of too much flex in the swing arm or something like that that would cause the the chain to come off? Or- I mean, I mean <laughs> does, do any of us really know? I mean, yeah, that's, I mean, that's this, is, this was something that Simon Crayfar said to, during, uh, during the commentary uh, at some point that it could be down to too much flex in the swing uh, in the swing arm. Yeah. It's certainly possible because that's the thing. I mean, the reason you use carbon fiber is because you can engineer flex that much more uh, precisely. Um, but it is quite possible that they've engineered it very precisely 
um, but overlooked the fact that it's now moving uh, moving a little bit too much, and or it's moving at a point which is critical for the um, uh, for the way that the chain runs. That should be a fairly simple fix in the sense that you would just you would need. Uh, to put a little bit of tension in the uh, in the chain somewhere, you'd have to put a uh, you'd have to put a tensioner on there. That inc that incurs some friction penalty, so you're um, yeah you're, you're losing some losing some power. But then they've had this well, they've had a carbon swing arm since last year, I think, uh, uh, and there was never an issue with before. It was it's just been this year. I mean, obviously, the, the, the square arm is going to change. The thing with the Honda engineering stuff, there are some bikes when you go and look, like, for example, um, uh, Aprilia. If you go down to the Aprilia garage, um, they've you can change, you can tell the difference uh, with the... Uh, between the between two different chassis, because quite often they will change where there's a, a particular weld. Mm -hmm. um, I remember also the on the Suzuki, they changed uh, the at some point they, they changed the chassis last year, and all of a sudden there was a cutout on the uh, on the uh, around the swing arm mount, which was different, and you could quite clearly see that it was that it was slimmer that they put it, uh, put some more flex in there. Um, uh, uh, HR, I've been looking at HRC. Uh, chassis for a long time. Same with Yamaha. They are so, they're almost identical. Every single time they're almost identical. And the only way you can tell is if you take sort of, you know, a, a picture in precisely the same time all the time, uh, from ex precisely the same place all the time, compare them, uh, and you'll see that something has been moved sort of one millimeter. But the basic design is, is identical and it's really, really difficult to tell them apart. And, uh, since working in pit lane last year, I spent a lot of time trying to look and trying to see differences, but it's so, so, so very different, uh, uh, difficult because, you know, they're, they've pretty much got their design bang up. Neil, I mean, could this be something else? Could this be a function of just the track itself being bumpy, the, the conditions, the lack of practice time? I mean, could it be something that's extraneous to what's going on in the Honda garage? Or are there just too many coincidences here? Uh, well, the fact that it happened in Argentina as well as Coda, I would say um, there's definitely something um, something wrong with well the design of the bike, something with uh, with this year's machine that they've yet to find out. Um, so yeah, I think that is probably the answer. Yeah, <laughs> well, that was well, a very well, diplomatic, very polite way. I think you'll yeah. be able to. Con be yeah, back I mean, in the Honda garage again. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we, we we will find out. We will find out if they uh, if they continue to have mechanical issues, then uh, that will be indicative of a bigger uh, of a bigger problem. It's not uncommon for you know when problems come a bit like the jump starts. We've had three jump starts in two races. There's a phenomenon called statistical clustering, which is just like you know random data is lumpy. It means you get a whole bunch of stuff to happens together at the same time, and then a whole bunch of time, uh, stuff. Then for a long period of time, you get nothing. So it could just be random, but it is extremely unusual. It's unusual, and you know one of the things I think back when I originally heard the quite shocking is that Lorenzo was going to be going to the Honda team was what that would mean inside the pit box in terms of having those two personalities, two two riders that are used to being uh, the number one riders and, and wondering if things would spill over. I, I do think it's a coincidence that we see the, the things that are that are happening now on track because they, they do seem more mechanical rather than, let's say, psychological. But it's interesting for me. I don't, I don't 
I don't know if you guys have any insight in what the atmosphere is like in in the team and if there could be distractions that are extraneous to the racing going on. Not Well, not yet, because uh, Lorenzo isn't fast enough. It's as simple as that. Right. These sort of things happen when uh, both riders are as fast as each other. Um, uh, that's when things... I mean, we hear all sorts of stories about uh, people being together. Certainly, uh, Lorenzo and... Uh, and Rossi in the same team was always a bit of a nightmare. Lorenzo and Dovizioso was a bit of a nightmare. But then Dovizioso and Iannone was a bit of a nightmare as well. And you know, the, the stories of um, uh, they were basically spotters in the Ducati hospitality. And when uh, Andrea Iannone uh, left after finishing in his dinner, Andrea Dovizioso would come in, that sort of thing. It's those sort of... Uh, uh, petty things. Uh, certainly, Mark Marquez is prepared for it because he spent all of the off season saying, you know, if you come to Repsol Honda, they expect you to win, and uh, which is a not so subtle um, uh, uh, sort of jab at uh, Jorge Lorenzo setting expectations for him. So, yeah, we'll see. I don't think anything has happened yet, uh, but I, as soon as Lorenzo is, as soon as Lorenzo beats Mark, then um, uh, there will be unpleasantness. But it will be unpleasantness behind closed doors, which we won't get to see. But we might hear. We might well, yeah, we might, yeah, we might well hear. We were sent, or we were stood outside um, the Repsol Honda cabin uh, in Qatar after the race there. Lorenzo had obviously had a horrible first round of the year, a couple of crashes another injury to take into account and we were standing waiting for his debrief which he was late for by about 10 minutes and uh, outside his cabin in Qatar they have these like cabins just outside the media centre where the riders um, sit in uh, store their helmets and letters and things like that and there was a lot of screaming going on inside that cabin so um, yeah we know this about Lorenzo we know that he's a very fiery character a bit of a perfectionist when things aren't going well he's not an easy guy to be around um, but uh, yeah, as you were saying, David, it's going to take uh, it for him to start being fast, for things to go well for him, for there to be an issue between the two guys. Boys, let's change gears a little bit and talk about one of the stories that kind of, let's say, over, I'm going to say overshadowed, but definitely hung in the air quite a bit while we were in Austin. And that was the state of the track. Um, obviously, there's there's a lot more bumps now at the circuit of the americas the the asphalt seems to be uh shifting we got the uh, excellent insights from jack miller the yes <laughs> the son of a miner knows his knows his dirt quite well um that maybe the clay content uh, of the soil and the fact that code was basically built where a lake once used to be uh things seem to be shifting around don't they david uh they are they um <sighs> Yeah, I mean, the soil underneath the track is moving around. The the I heard a story which I cannot uh, confirm that there was um, the, the track wasn't supposed to be here; it was supposed to be somewhere else, uh, and that's caused that's one of the problems which which is they'd looked at the geology and the geology was um, uh, not ideal. Uh, the, the, the clay keeps moving every time there's a very, very heavy rain. So we have very, we have torrential rains, which is why we didn't go racing on, uh, on Saturday morning. Um, uh, and it's, the thing is, is it is actually creating big bumps and not the kind of ripples which you get from, uh, uh from, from braking from, from Formula One, from cars, but, uh, you know, big undulations and waves. Uh, seem to be three spots turn two 
Um, as we said, really fast, uh, really fast uh, right-hander. Um, turn 10 was a big issue and the back straight. And to me, the, I mean, like you could quite easily fix turn two and, for, and turn 10 and have it be good for another two or three years. Uh, it would be an expense, it would be expensive, but not that expensive. But the back straight is a real problem because it's what, well, uh, well over a kilometer. You know, that's, that's a lot of asphalt to rip up and resurface. And because it's not just putting a new surface on, it's also making sure that it doesn't subside. Uh, again too quickly yeah and there were a couple of moments Marquez in qualifying Jack Miller in morning warm-up mm. um, riding down the back straight where it just it did seem quite dangerous they got offline a little bit sorry um, Miller was actually talking about early in the race when he was uh, just behind Cal Crutzel and he said he probably had the speed with the slipstream to pass Crutzel but he said he just did not want to get off the the one race in line which he knew to be quite safe because he thought if he pulled off there was a risk that he might hit one of these bumps the bike could shake and he'd be alongside Crutchlow and who knows what would happen then um, Ali Spargro told us on Friday that his uh, steering locks essentially had broken after one particular hairy moment along the back straight I mean that's just something you would hear about riders jumping balakrai at the TT not uh, not on a Grand Prix level track so um, a few guys Petrucci Alish were saying that they think we cannot return here in 2020 unless the track is considerable work done. Uh, guys like David Chiozo were saying, I think it's a step too far to say it's dangerous, but it's definitely very uncomfortable for us. Yeah, they they, they complained a lot about this last year as well. Um, uh, they said, really, it needs to be fixed for it to, for it to come back. Um, I think, certainly, I think if they fix turn two and turn ten, that that would make a big difference. Certainly, turn two. If they could fix turn two. That'd be that'd be a big difference. And, and if they could find some way of, um, I don't know, filling up the straight or whatever, do just do something on the straights to uh, uh, to to make it a little bit safer. Perhaps towards the end, as you as you get faster, that might also help. Yeah, and I think um, they did do some work at turn ten prior to this year's event. Um, they had smoothed out tried to smooth out part of the corner but what that had done is increase a lot of bumps and ripples just before where they had done the work and uh yeah we saw several riders having huge moments coming through turn 10 probably one of the scariest corners on the track where you're pitching into the left going downhill blind turn jack miller massive front end moment there in morning warm-up um yeah also i think we were kind of lucky that the weather was the way it is. Obviously, we had the uh, <clears throat> free practices cancelled on Saturday morning, which wasn't good. But uh, a couple of the riders said they would have been very concerned if they had to go out and ride in a mm. fully wet track. Now, we were lucky that um, it dried out pretty quickly um, before free practice four and qualifying. Um, but I think we might have seen uh, quite a few more complaints and maybe a few more hairy moments had been a fully wet day of uh of track action uh, over yeah. the weekend it's it's a shame i rode the track two years ago i think that was the last time i was on it and there was definitely bumps uh you can especially down the back straight you could you could definitely get jostled around a little bit it didn't look anything like the level it was this weekend though watching the riders i did some spotting at turn two was taking photos and it's tough because right when you're about to uh, you know, flick the bike over to really come down that hill is right where a huge drop is. And I don't mean a bump, I mean a drop. And you can watch in the videos, you know, you can see the bikes, you know, compressing, 
the suspension and then coming through it. And that's already a spot where, you know, you're trying to manage the front end grip. You're trying not to tuck the front as you come down because it is, you know, a pretty steep turn and it's quite fast. And you're asking a lot from your tires. And it's the same with turn 10. That's another turn where you're really leaned over on the bike. Um, you know, really trusting your tires and you're coming out of a little bit of a wheelie and, you know, you're asking a lot of the suspension. And, um, you know, those are very dynamic places that you're asking for your 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 suspension pieces yeah the thing is i mean we have to come to the u.s uh the market is too important for dorna dorna have invested a huge amount of money trying to uh popularize the sport there it really is it's it's their uh xanadu if you like if they can find um they they believe that if, if they can unlock this market if they can Get this market excited about motorcycle racing the way that it was in the uh, uh, in the late eighties and early nineties. Um, it's a it would be financially enormously rewarding. So we're definitely going to come back and race in America, the United States of America. But that leaves us with very very few tracks where where it could happen. It could happen here. Um, it can't happen at Laguna. Laguna's not safe no. enough, no. Um, nor do they have the money to do it. Um, uh, Indy, I'm not quite sure what they've done with the infield at uh, uh, Indy. I don't know if the, if the track is still there, but that would take a lot of work and a lot of investment, and I'm not sure that Indy would want to do it. That's the thing. I think Indy, Indy's, they, they'll do it if they can make a buck. Yeah. But it'd, be a, it'd have to be a significant one. It'd have to be worth their while. This is a facility that is... <laughs> I ran a story once. It's a city that's about the size of a of a star destroyer from Star Wars. I mean, it's mammothly big. There's a 18 hole golf course. Yeah, inside the yeah. facility. Yeah, you cannot appreciate the scale of it until yeah. you've actually until you've actually been there. It's fun. I mean, honestly, it's a fantastic facility. Right. It's it's amazing. I mean, like motorcycle racing, MotoGP always looked lost there, um, uh, even though they have, they would have 70,000 people turn up on Sunday because it seats 400,000 when the uh, when the Indy 500s there. And understand, so understand too that. that that size of a of a facility has a lot of overhead, has a lot of upkeep, has a lot of things, and they only really hold, you know, half a dozen events a year. Yeah. So it needs to be it needs to make a lot of financial sense for them to bring it back there. And I don't know what the the interest is in doing that. I know they've had some personnel changes, and that kind of can change the temperature on on things as well. And then you look at the rest of the facilities in the United States. Miller, maybe. Or yeah. Well, now it's you know. Let's change names, but uh, Barber never held, held a racetrack. Don't know what the the uh, Barber's too short. I think I believe that Barber's too short to uh, for uh, to qualify as a Grand Prix track. They, I mean, you know, well, so was Laguna Seca. Well, Laguna was. I mean, there's like, too short. There's too short. Yeah, exactly. But it, it's tough because we don't. I mean, when you look at Circuit of the Americas, and you look at the rest of the facilities and circuits that are on the calendar, Coda is the only one that is that caliber of track in the United States. Yeah, with exception to Indy, which is a a high level caliber track, but it's not it's not a motorcycle track; it's an oval. Yeah, and so you kind of sit there and it's like, I I'm seeing it as an American. I don't know where else you go. And I was at the track today, uh, watching uh, or talking with one of my colleagues, Randy Skaysbrook from Cycle News, and he's he was out there testing while the Aprilia MotoGP is testing. This is Monday after the race. This is the Monday after the race. Yeah, we should make that clear. And I was asking him what the track looked like for him because. He and I have both been been around Coda, you know, uh, more than a few times. And he was saying there's bumps everywhere. You know, it's not just the the corners that the riders were complaining about. You go through the stadium section, you go through the carousel, and, and you know, he was telling me, you know, he's leaned over on his knee watching the 
the plane of the asphalt undulate because there's there's just these huge ripples of how the the asphalt is moved. It's not just like oh, there's a little pothole here, there's a little bump there, there's a little uneven surface there. It's like uh, someone threw a rock into a, a still pond and you're watching the ripples radiate out. And how do you fix something like that? Yeah, and the finances of the track, I think, are a little bit in question. Did, yeah. Did you see any spectator numbers quoted this weekend? I did not, and I haven't looked on the Dorna websites, but, um, um, yeah, of course, they would also point out that it was uh, it was wet. But I did, to be honest, I, know, I didn't I, look. I know that they would, they would point out that it's wet, and I, I'm not so interested in what the number is. I'm interested in the fact that it wasn't publicized. And I remember last year, it wasn't publicized. Yeah. And I remember... Last year, too, we didn't hear any news about contracts being renewed three more years in the U.S., five more years in the U.S. when we all knew the contract was up. And here we are on the Monday after. Still haven't heard any news. Yeah, it's going to be it's going to be on a year to year basis. As far as I can tell, it's going to be on a year to year basis until Dorna uh, until either the track is fixed or Dorna gets a better offer. But it's a shame. It's such a great facility. Austin is a great town. Uh, I think all of us enjoy coming here. Um, uh, everyone in the paddock says it's, 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 you know, one of their favorite rounds. For some, it's the absolute favorite round of the, uh, uh, of the year. Um, it's great to come to US, a country outside of Europe, which is, you know, the paddock is enormously European. Um, but it's nice to come somewhere where they can sort of understand where, what things, what's going on. Uh, which is not the case, for example, in Japan, um, uh, and and where the facility, where, where just everything works and everything is is good, and it's beautiful around here as well. Is there any other event on the calendar, David, that you can think of where the MotoGP riders go to the host country and can blend in with the population? Um, no, uh, no, I think that's one. More. Actually, I wonder, maybe, maybe Australia, but I don't know. UK maybe as well. Sorry? The UK is with it as well. I'm thinking, you know, Rossi, I'm sure, would be recognised in London. Um, but he used to live there, of course. And obviously, yeah, the British guys would be recognised there. But would Mara Vinales or Alex Rins be that well received? Yeah, but I, should, I, I have a confession. Once they take their um, uh, team gear off and leave the circuit, then I'm not sure I can recognise half of them. They just look like young... Um, they look like youngsters, you know. They look like young people. I bring up the point just because it's one of the few places I think that they can go where they can be normal people again. And yeah. I think there's a tremendous value to that. Yeah. Uh, from a rider perspective. Um, you know, looking at it from an industry perspective, I mean, the United States is drastically underserved in terms of motorcycle racing from a Grand Prix level. Yeah, because that, that's the other thing. Um, uh, it's not just that. Dorna want to come to the US to try to break into the American market. Moto America are also, to an extent, uh, depend or um, not dependent is the wrong word. But the if motorcycle if MotoGP is is popular, motorcycle racing is popular, and that helps and that boosts Moto America. Yeah. Uh, and Moto America, the, the, the racing the, the racing in Moto America is absolutely fantastic at the moment. So if you're not watching it, um, you should be watching it. But um, there is a dependency. There is a there is a relationship between those two things. Absolutely. In fact, one of the most poignant moments of the weekend for me, David, was actually watching the first Superbike race in Moto America, which had an extremely close finish. And you watched everyone in the in the press room stop and watch those last few laps, those last few turns. And I think, you know, say what you will about American Superbike racing right now, but I think 
it'd be hard to walk away not impressed with the quality of product that we're producing in terms yeah. of fan appeal, interest, yeah, to an extent, excitement. Yeah, to an extent, the fact that there is um, a very little um, uh, uh, importer and manufacturer input into it or investment into it actually makes for better uh, makes for better racing because uh it's no one is turning up with an enormous ma machine advantage the bikes are pretty close the rule pack rule package is pretty close and that's producing good racing yeah and just comparing this year's uh moto america doubleheader at the circuit of the americas um to 2016 or 2017 um i mean there were a few puzzled glances at each other i remember in the press from watching it like in 2016 like really is this is yeah it was it was basically like an inter yamaha battle and that was it yeah and just the the size of the field even yeah it was so small um and the the variety of uh competitive machinery um on the field i think was uh was a bit too big um but this year as you said jb yeah fantastic racing um uh, we saw four guys fighting for the win on Saturday. We saw Josh Heron uh, win the race on Sunday. Um, I was speaking to John Ulrich, uh, editor of Road Racing World, but my boss uh, in some respects, on Sunday. And he was he runs a uh, racing team, obviously, in a couple of classes in Moto America. And he was saying, compared like this crowd uh, that run the operation led by Wayne Rainey, Chuck Asland, uh, to what was going on before Moto America came on. He said just, you know, the atmosphere is just so different. He said it was yeah. a horrible place to come and work prior to this takeover and this management change. And now um, it's open, uh, race direction makes good calls. Um, journalists are invited to ask tough, difficult questions. Um, and it just seems a, a pretty happy place to be again. It hasn't been easy. Uh, it's been a long road to get to that state and there's still a bit more to go. Um, but yeah, I think it's, uh, it's getting towards a good place now. Yeah, no, it's definitely, it's definitely better. I've actually had the same conversation with, with, with John Orch as well. And, you know, he's got a lot of positive things to say about where the management of the series is going. It's, it's tough times in the United States right now. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. Our uh, motorcycle sales are down. Motorcycle ownership is up, but those are kind of interesting numbers that are outside the scope of the show. But look at compared to the European market, I was just looking today. 2018 was up almost 10%. Um, it's obviously uh, the two-wheeled lifestyle is not doing well in the United States. There's kind of this divide between Moto America and the American Flat Track Series. And we see racers trying to figure out which one makes more sense to them, which one's going to get them more money in terms of sponsorship, which one has more eyeballs. Um, and neither series has quite taken that next step to kind of get to that level where it's a it's a healthy state. It's a I was gonna say safe state, but at least it's uh, one where we're not sitting around a couple of microphones talking about whether or not it's gonna make it. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, it feels like just as a as a, a casual observer from uh, from the outside, it feels like um, it's on an upward curve. Both series feel like they're on an upward curve, but the trouble is they're on an upward curve from very close to the bottom. Um, yes. uh, there is definitely there's a lot of uh, there is a lot of room for improvement, but they're moving the the the, the, the direction of movement is the right one. It's it's the, it's a move upwards, but it's always precarious. It's very precarious. It's it's one failed TV deal away. It's one failed streaming package. It's one 
well, maybe not one title sponsor walking away, but if you saw a couple of the larger checks, checkbooks walking out of the paddock, that could be a thing. If you saw one or two manufacturers leave, that could be uh, enough of a breeze to push it over because it's not it's not that stable set yet. I think we're I think you're right. I think we're on the right way. I think we're on the right trajectory. It sounds like everyone's feeling positive with where we're going, just not positive with where we are. And it's got the big TV deal this year, right? The TV deal is interesting this year. Yeah, the the value is is that the Superbike class will be shown live on which channel? Uh, and, and NBC, which NBC, is a, right. sure. a channel that just about I think it's NBC Sports actually, but it's a channel that most people, if they have a TV package, uh, will get. Now, obviously, we're seeing the younger generations choose not to have TV. They're, they're doing streaming through you know, whether it's Hulu or Netflix or what have you. Um, and I'm not quite sure, truthfully, if motorcycle racing has figured out the streaming thing. I just saw that MotoGP has uh, an app now for Roku and Apple TVs, which is a step in the right way, but also should have been something that happened 10 years ago. Um, I wonder, too, I have a MotoGP.com pass. I have a World Superbike pass. I have uh, you know the Moto America pass. I'm out like $500 a year now. Yeah, well, that's the interesting thing about the Dazen deal in um, uh, in Spain. Uh, Dazen is this thing they're trying to make themselves the streaming, uh, the, the Netflix of sports, I think, uh, is the phrase that they use. This deal has gone to Spain. There's some question marks over, um, if you like, sort of the shenanigans which have gone on be- uh, uh, behind uh, behind it, or, or the deal and and the value of the deal, what what the real value of the deal is. Uh, but talking to people in the TV industry, industry they say, uh, you know, Dazna making a really enormous push to become this, um, uh, this yeah, this platform, this Netflix of, sport, uh, of sports. If they can do that, um, then you know, motorcycle racing will be on this bigger platform. It will potentially be exposed to a bigger um, and, uh, to a bigger audience. And Dazen has also bought the football rights uh, to uh, to the Spanish football in and also the, the Premier League. I think they mm. have. I think, I think in the UK or uh, well somewhere they have the the, the the rights to the Premier League. So they're like they in Europe. They're really buying up key sports properties. The, 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 there's a kind of sports properties which you need uh, to succeed. Uh, that takes a lot of money. But knowing the the hand at Dorna, is that something you see them releasing control of? I, I mean, personally, I don't. I don't. When I look at Dorna's media strategy, making their stream available to other platforms, whether it's YouTube or, or the one you're talking about, or yeah, but what the, what they're afraid of is control. And the thing is, with a um, uh, when you do a deal with YouTube. You're basically handing uh, uh, handing over control, or if you're streaming something on on YouTube, you're losing control. You're giving away control. Uh, what they've done with Dazzle, with Dazzle, it's just a t- it's another TV TV deal. Basically, they are um, fine dealing uh, with uh, because Dazzle is also an an entity which they understand. I mean, they are looking at uh, Dazzle as TV on the internet, if you like, rather than a proper streaming service, which is what um, uh, something like YouTube or, or something like that. YouTube feels doesn't feel uh, like they have the control over it. So it, it, it's slightly different, but I can understand your point. The hard thing for me is as we as we go deeper down that rabbit hole is I'm a great example myself. I'm only going to sign up for for so many streaming services. You know, I have Netflix, but I don't have Hulu because I just 
an extra 10 bucks a month and I don't see the value in it. And how many of those am I going to be willing to sign up for? And I'm reaching that point with the racing streaming services where I'm paying, you know, quite the premium. And how many of those am I going to watch? Um, in the reality, how many, how many hours of my free time do I have to watch motorcycle racing if I'm a fan? And that gets tough. Um, but you know, if you look at the trend that media is going, we're seeing more and more TV boxes go away. We're seeing a lot more internet equipped TVs and streaming services take their place. The writing's on the wall there. I just don't know what the solution's going to be for, for MotoGP. Well, yeah, if they can, uh, if they can get themselves onto a platform where you're uh, sort of bundled with lots of other services. Because, I mean, you know, what's the difference between a, uh, if you like, a, a, a Netflix subscription or if Dazzin turns into this Netflix of sports? What's the difference between buying a Dazzin thing and having a whole bunch of sports you don't watch to buying a regular TV package where you have 12 no. trillion packet, um, uh, channels and you're only right. watching um, sort of, you know? No. I don't, I don't disagree with you. And, I, and that package sounds really interesting, especially, I mean, obviously it's very European centric, but if I was a European that cared about football, soccer, 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 if I'm, if I'm, if I'm someone in Europe that's watching soccer and I've got my motorbikes, <laughs> I got my motorbike racing, my soccer, my premier league, my Quidditch. What do you guys play over there? Cricket? I don't know. But, but you know what I'm saying? Like those, those key sports. And that's, that's now my streaming service. What? It'd be very similar if ESPN came out with a proper streaming package that covered all sports, you know, a network that is known for sports coverage. It's the one place you go for all sports, you know, sports center at night to find out what happened in the world of sporting. Boom, there it is. Yeah, that makes sense to me. What what doesn't make sense to me is having a fractured market and piecemealing it together. Like I sit here and I lose my mind on the fact that I can't buy a packaged uh, Dorna deal that gets me. MotoGP, World Superbike, um, CEV. CEV, that's the one I was looking for, thank you. You know, the the other properties that they own at some sort of rate that makes sense because... Or bundled, bundled with motocross, for example. Exactly. You know, whatever, you know, put it all together, give me a price that makes sense because I think that'd be actually a great way to increase the World Superbike watching rate. If you're sitting there like, yeah, you got MotoGP, but for, hey, for 20 bucks more, you can watch Superbike too. Well, Yeah. Okay, yeah. I mean, I watch every race, but for twenty bucks a year, I'll yeah. tune in. And then if the racing's good, you might make a fan out of them. But right now, it's—I forget what the price is off the top of my head, but it's right there with the MotoGP price. So I'm looking at almost yeah, three hundred dollars yeah. for the both of them, and it's just like, mm, I don't know. Is is a World Superbike subscription worth as much as a MotoGP subscription? And I'm sorry to my colleagues in the World Superbike paddock, but it's not. Well, the other thing is you've only got what is it, thirteen rounds. Uh, as opposed to 19 rounds. And yeah, sure, you got three races every weekend, but still, at 19, you know, you're looking at the number of weekends, it's going to feel not the number of races you're going to get to watch over a weekend. So, but yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's difficult. I think also Dawna don't, still don't see their, especially their streaming packages, their, 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 their video passes. They see that, uh, differently to, um, if you like a bundled sports package. So, so that's, again, that's it. Every and conversation it, I've had with them about, about the video pass about, cause we've, we've had conversations about advertising, obviously. So, you know, what, what is the marketing of it? You know, what, you know, how do you acquire customers and, you know, the cost of acquiring customers and, and packaging it with other things. And they don't seem to approach it from that perspective at all. It's something very different to them in their eyes. And maybe that's the disconnect.
with that, boys, I think we should move on. We're, we're a little bit over time, actually. So why don't we just get into the winners and losers very quickly and then bug out? Neil. Baby. How you been, sir? Yeah, good. Yeah, good to see you this weekend. Yeah, you too. Who was your winner this weekend? Um, don't tell me you're not ready already. Um, I'll say, well, you know, Alex Rins is obviously a massive winner. And none of us really saw a Suzuki Triumph in America. Um, but I'm going to go with Jack Miller um, because he was, as David said earlier in the show, the best Ducati this weekend um pretty much throughout and um yeah it's been it's been a strong start to the year for miller um we look back to 2018 he had two top six finishes throughout the entire year um that was really disappointing um i remember we were i think in qualifying for Mugello, and i thought wow jack miller's really arrived he is uh, a proper MotoGP regular front runner now and then everything just went awry and uh, he went essentially missing for basically the second third of 2018. Um, he uh, started on the front foot, um, obviously working well with the 2019 bike. Um, and uh, I loved his uh, his explanation for why he was faster than both uh, Dovizioso and Petrucci over the weekend. He said, you know, I tend to shut my eyes and hang on pretty good as opposed <laughs> to those guys, which is quite a rather uh, uh, direct means of uh, explaining his speed. Yeah, Miller did really well, gambled on the soft-soft uh, tire combination, uh, recognized that that was maybe not the best choice in terms of the front tire, uh, had to defend the Vizioso coming from in the closing laps, but still hung on. Um, and his uh, eyes hung on pretty good. Yeah, exactly. So, um, yeah, Miller, um, we know he has to start the year strong. He is in competition with Petrucci and Bagnaia for that second factory seat in 2020. Um, and if you can keep this up for another five, six races, then, um, yeah, questions will be asked about uh, Petrucci's continued presence in the factory squad. And the other side of the coin, the loser? Um, loser, I would say, is, well, I mean, Lorenzo's had a shocking start to the year. Vinales, just a desperate race yeah Vinales I'll say Vinales because it was uh, you know he, not only did he jump the start he then went and uh, did a long lap penalty <laughs> even though it doesn't exist yes exactly for, <laughs> for a jump start um, yeah just puzzling yeah he, he should know that stuff I mean, you really have to as a rider you have to you don't it, have to look, know very you much you have one job look here's the yeah. thing here's the thing <laughs> if this happened in Argentina you would think okay well there hasn't been a jump start in a long time but we've just Witnessed Argentina, where the big talking point of the weekend was Cal Crossos' ride-through penalty. But, but that was the problem because they everyone went to the safety commission here on Friday night, and they all talked about um, uh, well, they talked about the bumps on the track, and they talked about uh, the fact that the penalty for a jump start is uh, disproportionate, and they talked about how are we going to fix this. The long lap penalty came up, but instead of mar instead of like finding out what the rules are before the start of the race, Maverick sort of think vaguely remembered talking about the long lap penalty and decided to take a long lap penalty. Didn't look at his dashboard, didn't look for it, knew that he had a ride-through penalty and decided that the long lap penalty was going to be it. I mean, it's a mistake he shouldn't be making. And Maybe we're looking at the wrong... Sorry, JP, just yeah. to go on with the Vinales thing. He had the speed to win the race in Qatar. Yeah. Absolutely. He should have been second in Argentina. If you look at his warm-up performance, if you look at his qualifying performance in Argentina. And then again, he could have won this race here, yeah, I, I think, quite handily. Yeah, I had, I, had he... 
had he been there, had he had everything together and uh, got this early start to the race thing worked out, he could have 70 points right now. Uh, David Tiozo currently has 54. Yeah. He's just, he's, he's messing his, he's messed his whole year up, his whole championship challenge in the first three races. He's blown it. Yeah, I looked at his pace and his pace was um, as good as or better than Rince and Rossi. And he could have been on the Suzuki. <laughs> <laughs> Even worse. <laughs> uh, David, you're winners and losers. Uh, well, like, um, uh, uh, like Neil said, uh, it's easy to choose Suzuki, but I think I'm going to choose Valentino Rossi because... Mm. For, I mean, like every single year is, oh, will this be the year that it'll be number 10? Will he get his 10th title at last? And most of the time, the answer has been no. Um, the answer has been no from fairly early in the season, but everyone sort of has been holding out. But I really think that this year, uh, it's a realistic chance. I mean, he still has to beat Mark Marquez, um, which is... Uh, so far has only happened once and it was Honda who managed to, to, to beat Mark Marquez by producing a, uh, a hunk of junk. Um, that's not the case this year, but Rossi is looking stronger than ever. The Yamaha is looking competitive and the things that need fixing are fixable. Um, uh, he's being consistent. Uh, he's doing everything right. So I, I think, um, that also Valentino Rossi will have come out this weekend, uh, this weekend, you know, two, what is it, two seconds in a row? Um, really, uh, boosted, feeling strong, feeling encouraged, seeing progress, seeing the way ahead. And, uh, that's, that's really, really going to help him. Um, so yeah, for me, it's Valentino Rossi. And your loser? My loser is KTM. Um, Despite the fact they won the Moto Three race, despite the fact they actually had a really good result in Moto GP with um, with Paulus Bargaro, um, uh, KTM in Moto Two, the first first and I think only KTM finisher was uh, uh, Jorge Martin fifteenth. Um, they had just have got their Moto Two Moto Two chassis so horrifically wrong. Um, that it's going to take them a very, very long time to actually fix them. So I think this this race in particular exposed the weakness and the problems with the KTM's Moto2 bike. Yeah. And you, JB, oh, who's your you. winner oh, of the weekend? Yes, yes. Um, the winner for my weekend has got to be uh, Mr. Andrea Davizioso because he leads here in the, le- in the lead of the championship. And... Um, Numbers don't, who, lie. Numbers don't lie. Numbers don't lie. And who thought that was going to happen on Saturday? Yeah, and that and that and that's that's exactly my point. When you look at what happened Saturday, you know, narrowly missing out on on going through to Q two, having to start from thirteenth on the grid, uh, at a track where he knew you know Marquez was going to get some points on him. You know, it's it's kind of a, a managing losses type of weekend for for him and the Ducati. And it really just didn't seem like that was going to be the case. It really seemed like this was where, uh, that nail in that coffin might have been, might have been put on him by, by Mark. Um, so to come out of it with, uh, with a fourth and, and, and truthfully, I think a couple more laps in the race and I think he might have had Miller. Yeah. One more lap. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he was right there. Um, I give an extra lap because maybe they, they fight it back and forth. He knows what's in the reserve, but yeah, absolutely. I think just a little bit more on the, on the duration of the, of the race. And if, and if he'd qualified, further to the front would, would have been there probably sooner and maybe that would have been a result maybe would have been on the podium so 
Yeah, the numbers don't lie. It's a narrow margin for sure. And we go into Hereth. I think like the the championships on reset, and it's anyone's uh, game to to win it. Um, you know, and I think if you look at it too. The number of points that Marquez has lost already, and how far back he is in the championship. Uh, I believe it's nine points. Is it? Um, you know, that's that's going to take a while to claw back. That's a couple rounds that you know he's going to have to finish first instead of second. So that's a that that helps Davizioso in managing the the championship going forward, and I think it puts him in the driver's seat for the championship. Maybe not all the way, but he's got a, like a cheek on it. He's got a little bit more of a cheek than Marquez does for sure. Um, and for losers, yeah. Remember, you cannot say David Emmett for this. It has to be a rider. <laughs> oh well. Um, <laughs> Well, yeah, because otherwise it'd just be the same every weekend, and it wouldn't really be very much fun. I mean, you had to listen to my snoring all week. So. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do feel for the man. No, it's got to be it's got to be Jorge Lorenzo because I just, for all the reasons we've already described, you know, I don't need to rehash them too much. But I look at what happened to him after, uh, you know, he broke his collarbone. And how long it kind of joggled his mind, and you know, he had a little bit of a of a of a struggle bus moment with with mixed conditions and changing conditions on tracks. And I think, I think for us, that's still an issue for him. And I feel like he never really mentally recovered from those setbacks. And I worry that the adversity that he's had so far this season, and and even in the preseason, and and uh, towards the end of last season. I just I want to know what goes on between the years right now for that man because you know I've I've always kind of thought of him as being one of the riders that was more easily rattled in the head and there's some rattling going on right now you know there's there's a, there's like a spray can worth of rattling going on in a in a jug right next to him and I just I don't know here's where you're wrong JB tell me why I'm wrong sir right first of all um, he was. He, yeah, was, he was a multi-point rebuttal to this. First of all, uh, he was Valentino Rossi's teammate for a very long time and he managed to beat him uh, to three championships. Yeah, look um, how Maverick Vinales has coped with that position. Yes, exactly. And then you realise just what a great job Lorenzo did. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, um, second of all, um, uh, at uh, Le Mans 2018, we were all sitting around saying... Will Jorge Lorenzo be in MotoGP next year? Um, you know, will he have to retire? Will he have to go to superbikes? Um, because he's had such a miserable time and he can't gel with Ducati and it doesn't work. And uh, then uh, he destroyed everyone at, uh, at Mugello, um, one at Barcelona as well. Um, and all of a sudden the conversation changes. So the uh, look, fortune events um uh things can turn around very very quickly now i'm not sure it's that so in, in this case uh, so in this case but i really think that um i think it's too early to write to lorenzo off the one thing about the absolutely right about changing conditions uh, uh, lorenzo is great when he's got grip that can be either when it's dry or when it's properly wet but as soon as um you get unpredictable grip he's completely useless and you can write him off Yes, yes. There was a th uh, an interview that Davide Tarotti did with uh, Manuel Pacino at the tail end of last year. Tarotti was asked, what did you learn from Lorenzo? And Tarotti said, well, you know, I'm an ex-racer. I nearly won a World Superbike Championship. I managed Carl Fogarty. I'm 
like to think I'm a guy that doesn't give up. But Lorenzo, I learned that even with him, after watching how he reacted after the race at Le Mans last year, when everything was terrible, when all the talk about Lorenzo so, uh, was that he was out of the team, maybe out of MotoGP, he was still diligently turning his attention towards Mugello, how they could get this right. And yeah, it's been a shocking start to the year. Terrible. Uh, what, 13th, 12th uh, DNF. Um, it's not been good. But I think Lorenzo has known deep down since the start of the year that Jerez is where it's all going to change. He was fast there in preseason. And I'm not expecting him to be up there fighting for the win necessarily, but I think Lorenzo will be on. on. Everyone knows the value of Jorge Lorenzo. Let me just give you a hypothetical. We go to Jerez, and he has a miserable race weekend. What do you think then? I think uh, he'll take it on the chin and arrive at Le Mans and try to put it right there. And if it's it, okay, it, he's good at Le Mans. And if it's rubbish at Le Mans, then he'll go to Mugello. Which he's good at. And then if he's rubbish at Mugello, he'll go to Barcelona. Look, and, look, uh, you know when we write him off, Nick? When we write uh, Jorge Alonso off is, uh, shall we say... After maybe maybe after Assen two thousand and hang on one minute nineteen two thousand and twenty, if he is still nowhere by Assen two thousand and twenty, then we can write him off because by then uh, Honda will have given him what he needs, uh, and if he can't use it, then that's game over. There have been very occasional flashes of light and potential when the conditions have worked in his favour. Uh, even though it's still extremely early into his relationship with Honda, I think he was inside the top three in the first free practice session in Qatar. Yeah. Um, one of the sessions in Argentina also looked pretty good. Um, Testing, he was he was quick in a couple of tests. Yeah, before well. he broke his scaphoid. Yeah. So, yeah. He's, he, he's, he's, it's going to come right from. He's a rider who needs all of the pieces of the puzzle to be put together. Uh, when they are put together, he's brilliant. Occasionally, a piece will fall off, and then he goes to goes to pot again. But then you put it back together, and he's there. So you can you, you can never ever write him off, even when it looks like it's fully deserved. Write him off. But that's that's kind of my point, David. Though is everything needs to be right for him to win. And how often do things go right? And understand too, I'm not writing him off. No, no, no. I don't no, say no. like this is this is the end of Lorenzo. He won't. He, he, <laughs> I just I just worry that you know. I think I think he's a little bit more fragile with some of these things and and maybe not as resilient as some other guys. I think he's got an extremely good work ethic. I think you're absolutely right. He's going to go into every round and try to work it yeah, as no, hard it, as he it, can. It's not fragility. Fragility is the wrong word, but I understand what you're saying. Uh, he, uh, like I say, it's a, um, everything needs to be right, but he can put ev- he can make everything right. He can put all of the pieces together and lots of different kinds of tracks, lots of different kinds of situations um but um if there are uh, if things go off the rails they go off the rails but they tend to go off the rails for a very brief period the hardest thing for him for winning a championship will be the fact that when things go badly for him he can easily uh, even when he's doing brilliantly even when he's winning races when things go badly for uh, badly wrong for him he can end up 13th or 15th um uh, and that Right now, in the state that MotoGP Championship is right now, you cannot afford to finish 13th. Because if you do, um, those, it's too hard to make up the points, uh, your, the, your, the points on your rivals. So it's, but, um, I think, uh, I think you're wrong, JB. I think you're fine. 
Well, I do remember uh, who was the most correct on their predictions before this race. <laughs> so I'll just let my, my record speak for itself. And with that, we'll get out of this show uh, and circle back uh, maybe this time next year. <laughs> We'll see. We'll see. We'll put a, a can of Mountain Dew on it. How about that, David? That sounds like a, a not ma- not Diet Mountain Dew this not time. Not Diet Mountain Dew. Certainly not. No, the real thing, for sure. Um, thank you, listeners, for listening to us on this America's GP uh, podcast episode. We certainly appreciate you tuning in and, and listening to our, our thoughts about Grand Prix racing. Of course, you should be following us on the social medias. We're on Twitter, uh, Facebook, you listen to the show on um, Apple Podcast, please leave us a review and a rating. We greatly appreciate it. It helps other people find the show. Uh, Neil gets a, a high five every time someone leaves a, a positive review. So bring out the high fives for Neil. Uh, David, why don't you tell our listeners what they can do to help support the podcast by becoming a Patreon subscriber? They can go to uh patreon.com slash podcast. they can sign up as a uh, patron and if they pay a few bucks a month they get to listen for example to uh, they get to hear david abrivio talk about alex rins's uh, uh superb victory and maverick vinales explain why he made such a terrible uh, mistake and uh, they will help us continue to make these podcasts yeah there's some great behind the scenes uh, audio from uh, the race weekend from from here in austin texas obviously there's a bunch of other great things from from the previous rounds and we'll keep putting out some special content for our patreon subscribers so not only do you get to help keep this show running but you also get to hear uh some thoughts and some opinions that you won't find elsewhere in the paddock so that's always a good thing so sign up if you can it's it's really a nominal fee it's like a taco it's like a taco a year a month, month, and a month. Yeah, taco a month. A it's very nothing. cheap taco a yeah. month. Yeah, like a, like yeah, a by street standards. taco. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So uh, thank you again for listening, and we will hopefully talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Rinse. 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 Beautiful, beautiful.